This is the Pharmaverse Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Petrak, engaging leaders from the pharma universe. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Pharmaverse Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Petrak. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the pharmaceutical industry, you've come to the right place. Today's guest is Jody Gillen. And let me tell you a little bit about Jody. She's an MPH with over 20 years in the industry. And Jody has a very atypical route to CEO. That's why I wanted to share her story with you. She started off in MedCom and Publications with Novartis and Pfizer, but then she moved into patient advocacy where she spent the next nine years of her career, making it all the way to chief patient officer. She now finds herself as the president and CEO of BioCT. She's an amazing leader here to share her insights. Jody Gillen, welcome to the Pharmaverse. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be doing this, and I'm absolutely honored to be your first guest. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Tell us about BioCT, what's the mission of the company, and so forth. Sure. So BioCT is the trade organization for life sciences for the state of Connecticut. We're a member-based organization. We have almost 300 members. Uh, They come from all walks of the universe in terms of life sciences here in the state and even out of the state if there's an interest in the state. I think each CEO puts their own spin on the mission of the organization, the focus. I try and crystallize mine in terms of the three P's. First and foremost is policy, making sure that we have a favorable environment to really catalyze the state. The second is around people, and that's everything from middle school mentoring, STEM education, ensuring diversity in careers in STEM through C-suite recruitment, development, and training. Uh, Also within people, we try and convene by function, by topic, and by region. And then lastly, the third P is around promotion. So making sure the state is not only nationally, but internationally recognized for all that we're doing here in terms of life sciences. That's great. I I really loved how you said crystallized, because I think one of the roles of a leader is to crystallize the vision. And when it's easy to remember, like the three P's, uh, it goes a long way. So I'm sure people uh, on your team appreciate that. Now you're the president and CEO of BioCT, and most CEOs have either dreamt about or somehow aspired to become a CEO, but you didn't, did you? Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm probably a a reluctant CEO, although I'm enjoying it a lot more than I thought that I would, um, and I feel incredibly fortunate to have this opportunity. Um, I am lucky that a former board member from McKillian shared this opportunity with me. So I think a lot of my experience, too, is following who I know. Um, so it's one demonstrating the leadership opportunities, skills while you have that chance, and then following the people that you have chemistry with, so really building and enhancing your network. Um, I did speak to a lot of people before I made the transition. I think for me, I've always reported into CMOs or CEOs, and I kind of enjoyed that, being on a leadership team, having departments I'm leading, but it was up to someone else to have all the the fate of the organization rest upon their shoulders. And I was warned from other CEOs about how incredible the opportunity is. It's truly once in a lifetime. But there is that churn that you you 
lose the ability to sleep soundly at night. It is 24-7 with, you know, the solvency of the organization resting upon you and every member in the organization. Yeah, I can appreciate that, how... You know, if it's easy to come up with ideas when you don't really have to make the decision, but once you are in that decision-making seat, the lift is very heavy and the pressure is, is definitely felt. And for a female leader on top of everything else, that probably has its unique challenges. What would you say are some of the challenges female leaders face? Yeah, I think um, if you look at the statistics, only about 20% of leaders in life sciences happen to be women. And I think we're trying to grow and build that. We still have a long way to come. So I, I don't want to bemoan that it, it's lonely at the top because I think I'm so privileged, as are other women who have made it to C-suite or CEO, but we tend to often be the only one. And you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable um, and just get accustomed to that. I think it's also really important to always act with professionalism and kind of, you know, keep your feelings private, keep your private life private, mm -hmm. and just always be professional. I do think it's really important, though, that we make sure that we keep growing that 20% over time. And I also find even when I look at, you know, trying to attract board members to our board, that that 20% of women who are in the C-suite or CEO position are getting incredibly stretched. They're being asked to be on every board, every committee, um, and they're over committed. So I think the more women that we can enable these opportunities for, um, then we're not stretching the women in these leadership roles so thin. Yeah, those are good insights. You know, often you can learn a lot about a person. This is one of my uh, golden interview questions. You can learn a lot about a person by finding out when they started working in their life and what that job was like. And you have a very interesting story there. Tell us about that. Yes, it's probably unexpected. So I was eight. I'm actually first generation American um, on my father's side. And my grandparents all came from Poland after the war. And they restarted their lives in Brooklyn and not the good part of Brooklyn, the kind of Brooklyn that you just want to get out of, which I feel fortunate that I moved to Manhattan when I was 13, because that really, you know, started my career trajectory at that point um, at a magnet high school. But going back to my job at eight, my grandparents started with a lumber yard and then built out a kitchen and bathroom store and a hardware store. So the hardware store was all the way down the block and I was manning the hardware store alone. And folks would come in, fortunately it was only three aisles and they would ask me for things and I had no idea where they were. So I would walk around with the hardware store until they found it. And then I just remember that if I sold $75 worth of goods, then any, the customers got a free uh, video cassette. So my goal was to upsell that $75 as often as possible. And I was so good at it that my grandparents kept me in the hardware store every weekend. I didn't know you were there alone. I mean, that had to teach you a lot of uh, managerial type skills or at least self-management. Man, I, that is crazy. Eight years old alone in a, in a hardware store. Well, they were down the block and I'm old enough. It's a completely different generation. Yeah, <laughs> so. That's true. Yeah. You know, when I go to a hardware store, I need someone to show me where things are. So uh, it sounds like things were the same back then. But uh, I'm sure your grandparents and your parents in that setting, when you're a young person in a store like that, 
imparted some advice, but it was years later that your dad gave you a couple bits of advice that have stuck with you. Tell us about those. Yeah, my late father used to say two things primarily, and I didn't quite understand them at the time. And I also wasn't sure if they pertain to my personal life or professional life, but I think they're applicable to both. So he told me that the cream always rises to the top and water seeks its own level. And when I think especially about the cream always rises to the top, there are times that, you know, in every organization, there are politics and there are certain dynamics. And I think if you always hold your head up high and you always do the best work and strive for perfection, at some point that's going to get noticed. And I think also being aware of politics, but not engaging in them and making sure that you collaborate and bring everyone else around you up, that will also be seen and pay dividends in the long run. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And because a lot of people think that moving up the ranks in an organization is about positioning and politics, but you shared with me that your philosophy is very different. Tell us a little bit about what you think helps someone make it to the top. Yeah, I think um, it's it's been interesting for me, and it hasn't always been easy. I think there was a point in my career that I was really struggling to advance. So for me, it was actually um, making a compromise in terms of my life and being able to go to AstraZeneca in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and live there Sunday through Thursday, uh, that I had this opportunity to be able to head their chief medical office, which really catapulted my career. I think also when I look back to that interview process, I had absolutely no experience in any of the departments they were seeking. So for me, maybe it's this anti-imposter syndrome that if I'm given an opportunity, whatever it is, I'm going to make it work <laughs> when I get there and being able to convince others that I'm going to make it work, whatever it takes. So I'm very grateful for those opportunities and jumps across my career. Yeah, that's interesting. You're known for your work ethic, your hustle, and help define what those things mean to you and to our audience. You know, I just gave a talk, I, I think it was a month ago, Power Women panel through the New Haven Chamber of Commerce, and it was with the Lieutenant Governor and uh, newscasters, and I was really honored to be on that panel. And the one thing that we shared, and we didn't realize this till we were live, is that we all have grit. We all came from nothing, worked our way um, to the top or tenacious when after things, when after opportunities, um, and are all driven, did not take no for an answer, and then just made it work once we got there, whatever it took. So I think it's really that grit and determination that's a differentiation. Yeah, I think so too. I love that. And, um, the, you know, the other thing that we, we share in common is, uh, the value of mentors. And I know you've spoken about, uh, your late father, uh, David at a, a Killian, but I know that we share a mentor as well. And Michael Geffner, what has he meant with to you, and what has he taught you? 
Michael Geffner is the gold standard in, in bosses. He, yeah. he is just hard to replicate. I am extremely fortunate. He gave me an opportunity to move into biotech in the rare disease space, uh, work in medical affairs, lead patient advocacy. He taught me every single thing about medical affairs and being able to lead that function. But he also taught me how to be the partner of choice and to be a better person and to manage work-life balance. So Michael made sure he even taught me to write thank you notes after every single meeting. We traveled probably 85% of the time around the world. He taught me to take a few hours out each place we go, discover a city, really enjoy. So it's not just work and a grind, but there could be some appeal to the trip too. But Michael taught me that even if you're at a small biotech that no one's ever heard of, we won an award that year for being the partner of choice against the large pharmaceutical companies. So even being this company with no resources, not recognized, we could always be the partner of choice just by how we operate. So I really have Michael to thank for everything after Achilleon from 2016. Yeah, I owe him so much too. It feels like every time I'm talking with him, I'm learning something. And speaking of those trips abroad, one time I did a FaceTime call or a Zoom call or something with him, and he was in Santorini, Greece. And it was like one of those like look off the cliff into the into the ocean kind of a white brick building and and I remember that vividly. And yeah, so he's he's a world traveler and a world class guy, that's for sure. Now I'm sure Michael Geffner's mentorship, other mentors you've had, time working in the hardware store has all developed a leadership style and some foundational principles that you lead by. Can you explain what those are? Sure. So I go by the saying that people actually leave managers, not organizations. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So when I am leading a function organization, I see myself as ultimately responsible in every way that all these individuals under my remit are my troops. I need to develop them. I need to maintain their work-life balance. I need to work on their engagement um, and think about their career trajectory overall. So that could be in my organization. It could be in another department that I need to find them opportunities and develop those skills. It could ultimately even be in another type of organization if that's what they're looking for. I think also making sure that they're happy, that they're not stressed over work, that they feel satisfied and fully engaged, and they're enjoying at least 80% of what they're working on. That's the goal. That's great. You know, I, I hear this from a lot of leaders. Conventional thought is when you have somebody that's talented in your department, you want to hold on to that person. Um, but what I hear from great leaders is, you know, you don't hold that person back. You, you allow them to explore their passions, even if it's outside the company. That's really been your experience. And how have you seen that work out? Yeah, I think about even my time at AstraZeneca. I had someone in the chief medical office who's really interested in compliance. So we worked out an opportunity where she spent one day a week volunteering to work with compliance, but then actually working on projects that cross both departments. And then we shared. So she then ended up staying in the company, splitting her time, really developing and adding a lot of value both to our department and the company overall, but doing what she wanted to be doing. 
Yeah, it takes a strong leader to let uh, a really top talent fly. Um, but it sounds like it's worked out for you. And, you know, a lot of the people that are listening, Jody, are aspiring leaders, you know, people that that want to be a CEO or want to move up into management or whatever. What are some pieces of advice that you would give an aspiring leader? I think seize every opportunity. I think be really vocal about what you're looking for, but then also craft the opportunities yourself. So I think everyone looks at, you know, coming to senior management and that being the ultimate goal. And I think you really want to make sure that you're ready for that. And I don't mean just ready for that across your career. I have now an 18-year-old who's in college, and it mattered very much where he was in his life and where his dad was and what my personal situation was where I can balance becoming part of senior management because that does really take on your life and you have to be prepared for that. So I think being really thoughtful about timing is critical. I think also putting your hand up, finding opportunities, and it could be leading different initiatives across departments. Um, leading various collaborations. I think also I get asked the question often about board memberships that, you know, people want to take on a board seat. How can I do that? Well, you might want to bring up being a part of a board committee first, and then it could become a full-time board role. I had someone approach me about, you know, starting an audit committee on my board and, and that they'd be willing to volunteer. And I thought, wow, I don't have an audit committee, but I should. And, you know, so I think being willing to create opportunities where you can demonstrate leadership is, is a good first step. I think also for me, when I was at AstraZeneca, and I keep coming back to AstraZeneca, but someone on my team you know, said to me, you always appear so confident in all your decisions. And maybe that's a key to good leadership. Sometimes it is a coin flip or my background is an epidemiologist. So you try and kind of decipher all this data and then make the best decision that you can at the time with the data at hand. That's what we do. But I think appearing confident around that decision and then just making it work um, is the best way to demonstrate leadership because you want everyone to rally around that direction. So it does become the right decision. Wow. Great insights. And and thanks for bringing up your 18 year old son. I mean, I got to think there's a lot of parallels to raising a child and leading an organization, especially when we're thinking about, you know, taking a top talent and allowing them to outgrow the situation that you brought them into Okay, that's essentially what parenthood is, isn't it? Well, he, my 18-year-old is definitely my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> so hands down, nothing in my career you know, comes close. But certainly I think being ultimately responsible for individuals and for an organization um, is quite similar. Now, you've spent many years within pharma, and now you're a bit on the periphery of pharma, which gives you a different vantage point. What challenges do you see facing pharma companies right now that leaders have to deal with? I think there are so many competing forces at the moment that are becoming incredibly challenging. So, you know, if we look at everything happening with price controls, um, education around that, how to develop a strategy to manage, because 
what you develop in, whether it's small, large molecule, the indications, the timing, all of that needs to be thought through. But then on the flip side, it's taking longer and it's more expensive to get a drug to market. And if we look at FDA statistics, so last year, I think um, there were 37 approvals, but previous years, it was closer to 53. So it's taking longer. It's becoming more expensive. You have price controls now and there are less approvals. So you're kind of getting squeezed on, on every side at the moment, um, trying to manage that and be incredibly strategic with limited resources. I think to counteract that, I'm seeing companies really leverage artificial intelligence now across development, whether it's, you know, determining a molecule, indication, patient population, clinical trials, finding patients, marketing, you know, all across the board. And I think that's where we're finding efficiency to counteract all those competing forces. Yeah. When you really put it like that, there's so many different pressure points on leaders today in the pharmaceutical world. And that's part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is so that, you know, people can gain insights. So there could be some best practice sharing among the pharmaverse. And I know you're very passionate about patient advocacy. Some of our listeners are in the C-suite like yourself. Some are more V-level management. What are some words of wisdom that you can share with them about setting up a patient advocacy program within their company? Sure. So I think, um, especially starting out, the first thing I would do is, is a map of all stakeholders. So who's on first? Going in person, ideally, meeting with key stakeholders, sitting down. I like to sign CDAs with heads of patient groups, bring them under the tent, tackle these issues together, um, think through different programming, but make sure they understand the pain points because really there are mission matched objectives. They want to bring therapies to their patients. They want each company in their space to be successful. So I think the more that you could share with them and the more that you could tackle the challenges together, the more impactful it will be. Yeah. Great advice. Very succinct. I appreciate it. Any parting advice that you would give specifically to aspiring leaders out there? So I think being really aware about what your strengths and weaknesses are, be cognizant, and then making sure that you're aware of your blind spots and you surround yourself by the right people that can compensate those blind spots. So doing a real scan, being brutally honest with yourself, getting input from others. So for me, if I look at my executive team on BioCT, it's made up of folks in finance and an attorney because I want to make sure that we're compliant from the legal front. And I know that finance maybe isn't my strongest suit. So I make sure I'm aware of my blind spots and then surround myself by the very best people who can mentor me, help build me up, but also fill those blind spots. Great advice. Wonderful advice. We do have time for one little sneaky question here. A lot of leaders like to read leadership books and the Pharmaverse is going to promote one leadership book a month. Are there any leadership books that you've read that have been really influential to you? It's funny because um, I was sent the book Quit by <laughs> my last organization. Everyone thought it was incredibly funny, but that's such an insightful book. It's really about when to cut your losses to be a successful leader. Wow, I'll have to check that out. I have not read that one. 
But Jody, on behalf of all in the Pharmaverse, I just want to thank you for your time and your willingness to share your insights and agreeing to be our first ever guest. So again, we thank you. Oh, I'm happy to. And if anyone wants to follow up with me, it's jgillen at bioct.org or LinkedIn, Jody Sherman Gillen, or please sign up for BioCT's newsletter on bioct.org. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Happy to do so. And as you mentioned, Jody Gillen's a great follow on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me as well. But that does wrap up our first ever episode of the Pharmaverse. It went by quickly. We have many more great leaders lined up for you, so still lots to come. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Pharmaverse. Thanks for joining us on The Pharmaverse Podcast. Make sure you subscribe below so you don't miss any leadership insights. Like and comment. I would love to hear from you. We'll see you on the next episode of Pharmaverse.